I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, is the Olympic ideal still intact? As the Olympic torch relay nears its destination in Pyeongchang, South Korea, we look at whether the spirit of the Olympics can thaw global tensions, or do bread and circuses, complete with doping scandals, just briefly distract us. Politics and the Olympics have gone hand in hand for a century. After the First World War, the International Olympic Committee banned the losing axis of Germany, Austria and Turkey, and barred Germany and Japan again, after the Second World War. America and its allies boycotted the Moscow Olympics in 1980, after the invasion of Afghanistan. South Africa too was kept out from 1964 to 1988, on account of its apartheid white rule. Since ancient times, the Olympics have provided an arena for political muscle to be flexed, as well as human ones. The 11 killings of Jewish athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. The slaying of protesters in Mexico City, days before the 1968 Olympics, and the Cold War of Olympic boycotts, keeping that story on the front pages. There have been moments when the promotion of peace took centre stage on the podium, and this Winter Olympics, North and South Korea will march together under one flag at the opening ceremony, and they'll compete in a joint team in a few events, including ice hockey. Dancing for joy outside a women's ice hockey game just days before the Winter Olympics. Some supporters delighted about the joint team from Korea playing what's supposed to be a friendly match against Sweden. A warm-up friendly there, though friendly hardly describes the overall situation on the Korean peninsula. Outside, there were small protests. Scuffles erupt between police and a small crowd of anti-North Korean demonstrators. They call North Korea's leader a dog. And they ridicule the Winter Games, calling them the Pyongyang, not Pyeongchang, Olympics. The North Korean delegation has been interpreted as a sign of slight improvement in relations during a time of heightened fears over the North's nuclear ambitions following a series of missile tests. But North Korea has scheduled a large-scale military parade for Thursday. Mixed messages then from the start. To decode all of this, I'm joined from Athens by George Papandreou, the former Prime Minister of Greece and the Vice President of the International Olympic Truce Foundation. He was also in power when the Greek financial crisis hit, so I'll be asking him too about that and what he learned from it. Mr Papandreou, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello and uh, very nice speaking with you, Anne. So, of course, we, we, we've got a Greek and a Greek involved with the Olympic movement. So we're going back to basics here. What is the idea of an Olympic truce and where does it come from? Well, you mentioned, Anne, that uh, politics was always part of the Olympics. Well, actually, the Olympics began as a, an idea for peace. Uh, the initial uh, three cities that were warring in the Peloponnese uh, decided to... Uh, 
after they had consulted with the uh, Delphic Oracle that they would uh, organize uh, games and that these games would uh, would be a time of peace, a truce, the Olympic truce. And uh, in fact, that Olympic truce kept for 1,100 years, every four years, with one exception, the longest standing uh, peace treaty in human history. So uh, that is the original idea of the Olympic Games. But then when the modern Olympic Games began in 1896 in Athens, the idea of both the um, French, Pierre de Coubertin, uh, one of the founders of the modern Olympic Games, but also the two Greeks, the Zappas and Vikelas, was again to uh, basically a an idea for peace. As a matter of fact, the um, initial uh, International Olympic Committee, the IOC, was 80% made up of peace activists. Many of them, five of them actually, went on to win Nobel Peace Prizes. So the Olympic Games, the whole idea was, let's bring back this idea of peace through sport and and culture. And what about the actual truces? I mean, let's look to some recent example of, of truces that you could say have impacted on major international stories. Where would you point me? There are a number of examples which I think are, are, are of interest, and I think this shows that uh, the Olympic Games can be a window of opportunity. The uh, Norwegian Games, the ones in Lillehammer, we then had the Yugoslav conflict, as you can remember, uh, in Sarajevo. We were able, as a world, world community, to, to have one day of truce, 24 hours. UNICEF came in and inoculated thousands of children. Later on, uh, during the Nagano Games, I was in Nagano. Uh, we all made a plea to President Clinton. He was, at that point, had announced that he was going to bomb Iraq. We asked for him to consider that uh, this should be the time of truce during the Olympic Games. So he that was the, resp- the after, just to be clear, though, that was the aftermath of Gulf War One. That's right. It's, it was be- much before Bush, and uh, of course, which was where there was a war. This was 1998. In fact, uh, he did respect this call. Kofi Annan, then the head of the United Nations, went to Iraq, negotiated with Saddam Hussein, and uh, they found a settlement which was acceptable at that time between the U.S. and the international community and Iraq. So there was, uh, we did avoid, at that time at least, uh, a bombing. Now, 2000, we had the two Koreas marching into um, the stadium in Sydney under the same flag. In uh, the uh, Sochi Games, we had uh, the Duma, the Russian Duma, proclaiming a truce. And in fact, it did influence, I wouldn't say it was uh, decisive, but it did influence three days of, uh, of, a, of a truce uh, in Aleppo for humanitarian organizations to go in. The, the only thing I'm beginning to wonder is whether it's good at providing brief truces, but I can't follow any line from it to any conflict or a longer ceasefire or a truce or an end of a conflict, or can you? So let's not be naive, of course, but uh, and some people will say, yeah, this is a very lofty, romantic, naive idea. Yes, but in diplomacy, and I have been foreign minister many years and prime minister also, in diplomacy, one looks for every possible window of opportunity when one is in a conflict. Will this be simply a propaganda effort from uh, possibly the North? Will it be simply a, um, a media campaign? But at the same time, we can't say that, uh, that it hasn't already had a positive effect. First of all, the games will be safe. Secondly, the Koreans, both North and South, uh, are not only getting together, but it is creating a momentum. 
and this is a momentum in uh, in the public also. It's not simply a momentum at the at the leadership level. But how would you know that? Because we know that the Olympics tend to capture imagination sometimes more briefly. Sometimes they have a more lasting. Uh, sort of feeling or reputation in a city. But to to be a little bit rude about it, I mean, how do we know that this is not just a sort of dream of Olympic bureaucrats rather than something that we feel has really caught imagination? Well, certainly it's not a dream of bureaucrats. It's a dream, I think, uh, much more of, of our societies and uh, that, that we can live in peace. But will it simply remain a dream or not? Well, nobody can be sure. So you're right. Yes. And on the Korean example, it is a move forward. Former head of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, uh, recently said this is very positive. Uh, he's a South Korean himself. There is a general hope that this can be developed. Obviously, these Olympic Games have created a diplomatic possibility. Will it be used? Well, there has to be much more than simply the Games. Uh, there has to be political will. But it has opened a dialogue, and if this dialogue can continue, then we'll see if that can be used as an opportunity for building something more robust. What would you ideally do afterwards? I mean, if you're into a situation where you've basically got one nuclear power, which is holding nuclear weapons outside international agreements, what is the ideal follow-up here? I mean, it's unlikely to be a, a change of heart immediately in Pyongyang. But are there, I mean, from experience, what's the best follow-up that you've seen? Creating the spirit, creating the atmosphere, creating the diplomatic, if you like, ecosystem is very important. And what will have to happen after the, the, the Olympic Games is that uh, if these discussions continue, they have to bring in the six countries that have been involved, obviously the United States, but Japan, South Korea, North Korea, China, Russia have been involved. A regional approach is very important to bring in the region. This is not just, of course, on uh, North Korea. There are other regional issues there. Also, I would add there is one thing that the Olympics bring, or at least the spirit of the Olympics bring, but in practice also, it is the only place where everybody accepts certain rules based on certain values. Well, uh, that, that, that's to look past all the doping uh, allegations which have uh, well, got run the, deeper and deeper into the, yes, but uh, and there's, corrosively I, I, into I, the Olympic I, Games. I, th- I think that just shows why, why we need to go back to the spirit, the real spirit of what the Olympics were about. And don't forget, wherever there are rules, there'll be those who want to bend them or, 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 go, or go around them. This happens in all societies and organizations, but the basic rules are still there and people accept them. If you want to be part of this community or this, this this event, there are certain rules, and you are penalized if you do if you are found to have broken them. But in that case, let me put you on the spot on a difficult case. There'd be many different views about what to do about it, and it'd be very interesting to hear from from listeners too about about what they think about that. If you take the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, very useful to Vladimir Putin in putting forward a, a, a softer view of Russia under his rule. It was just shortly before the closing ceremony, the military intervention into Crimea was launched. Now, you could say there's a point in which if you really believe in the Olympic ideal as being part of a sort of play for a peaceful future, it then has to have something to say about that. It can't just carry on handing out the medals, waving the flags and giving the credit to leaders who definitely take credit for holding Olympics uh, on their territory, whatever else they may be doing outside their borders or in what they consider to be their backyard. Well, we do live in a world of contradictions, and, and we're not going to bring peace uh, simply by, uh, by, by hoping. Uh, all I'm sa- all on I'm, that and, specific and, and, case, what would you have done? Well, I would, 
Well, I think I think there there are two things here. First of all, don't forget that um, during the Sochi Olympic Games, uh, what was highlighted around the world was the negative view of uh, the Russian leadership on homosexuality. And what happened was, of course, there was a global sort of uh, outcry, and that was, I think, important, very important for that for that cause. There's, of course, a global outcry on on Ukraine and and Crimea too. Uh, now, can the Olympic Games solve these problems? No, but they do offer an opportunity to bring people on different sides together. And there are many issues around the Olympic Games, whether they're too big, whether they're too costly, whether the doping, all that. Yeah, but what I would say is. For the, all those reasons, let's let's get back to the um, to the origins. Let's get back to the spirit. Let's come back closer to home. I mean, if we we look back to the legacy uh, of the two thousand and four games in in Athens. I mean, do you, do you think that in terms of looking back and knowing what you know uh, about that sort of from the inside, but observing it, it now and the fact that it was a, such a symbol of pride at the time, but that sort of slightly problematic Olympic village. What did we learn from that? What do Olympics, what, what did the Olympics specifically in Greece need to learn from that? First of all, there was, uh, there was a lot of discussion whether the Olympics uh, were the problem of our, of our debt and, and deficit. But uh, in fact, it was, it was a very small, small uh, dent in our, in, our, in our deficit. It wasn't really, uh, it was not at, at all. It was a very expensive village, wasn't it? It was yeah, several uh, yeah, yeah, but nothing to do with the, with the, uh, with the real problems that Greece had. Uh, in the next five years, there were our debt unluckily doubled, and our deficit went up to fifteen percent in two thousand and nine. This was uh, minuscule compared to that. So uh, I think it, it didn't have much to do. But of course, there were very big venues created, and I think they were the government that then took over afterwards did not really do much to uh, to utilize them. What we had hoped was for Athens is to use this um, this opportunity to become what Barcelona did. Look what Barcelona did. Barcelona was uh, used the Olympics to um, reorient the whole city to open up to the sea, which it did. And but it may be that you got the planning city. wrong to start with, which is why you've got derelict buildings. I would say the planning was not bad. The planning was quite good, actually. The Most of the buildings were built in order to open up to the sea, but then they were not used afterwards. In 2009, that's five years later, I took over. Um, these buildings were still derelict. One of my first visits was to the uh, one of the venues uh, by the sea, or the old airport, and I said, we have to open it up, and I brought in international investors and, uh, and architects to look at it. But as we were moving through the through the crisis, uh, nobody would invest in Greece. I remember the Qataris who were interested in investing were saying, well, we'll see if you stay in the euro or not, and then we'll think about investing. We do want to invest, but we won't do so unless we're sure. So we went through a very difficult time when Greece was basically hit, not only for its past, but also because of uh, we didn't have a very strong, powerful message from the European uh, Union, and particularly from the Eurozone, that, uh, yes, Greece would stay within the euro. And uh, that that just created havoc because uh, people started taking their money out of the banks, people wouldn't invest, wouldn't consume, and foreign investors wouldn't come to Greece. And uh, if you have two or three years like that of stagnation, you don't, uh, you can't easily get out of the crisis. And I think that's one of the reasons, not the only, why we still are almost eight years, eight years, nine years now of um, uh, under the this uh, this adjustment process under the tutelage of the so-called troika. 
And indeed, the, the, the so-called troika or the ex- sort of external pressure and ex- attempts to manage the, the Greek financial uh, situation externally, with Germany obviously in, in a leading role there, that has gone on now for for many years. I mean, what is your takeaway from all of those years? You started out as prime minister in this process. We're now, I think, set to see Greece exit the third bailout this summer. What have you learned in the, in the time, and what would you do differently? The first reaction, of course, we, we Greece did have its problems. We had our huge deficit, um, but as I then said to uh, my colleagues in the European Union, that this was the tip of the iceberg. We have to reorganize our public sector, the state, uh, fight clientelism, uh, bring bring in uh, more transparency. Things I had begun to do, like putting everything online, every expenditure of the government online, uh, e-prescriptions for, for in the medical sector, which cut our cost by 50%, $3 billion, which is as much we make in property taxes. These are the types of reforms we need to continue. Rather than simply looking at the, um, at the budgetary issues, that was, of course, difficult for Europe because that would have meant possibly more money for, for the bailout. Uh, second is that uh, this was not just a Greek problem. This was a Eurozone problem. Things There was a contagion and uh, very easy just to put the blame on Greece. That would have made it much easier because then just Greece had to make the adjustments and nobody else. When we get away from these blame games and uh, actually help each other, we can be much more forceful. But where uh, do you I think, think it, we are now? I mean, here we are, 2018. And what have you learned from it? Greece is emerging from, the, from this, uh, this adjustment process. We still have much to do to to make changes, deeper changes in Greece. But uh, I think things are somewhat more stable as far as the market uh, markets are concerned, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to access the markets, um, if not by the end of this year, early next year. However, the cost uh, on the Greek economy and the Greek people has been uh, has been has been brutal, actually, a twenty five percent of GDP loss, high unemployment, huge taxes, which um, are really burdening uh, our, our families uh, and, and competitiveness and, uh, and, and many things. So there's a lot that has to be done, and I think that um, this is partly our responsibility, partly the responsibility of the European Union, and we have to deal with the uh, overhang of the debt in one way. That's one of the discussions which will be taking place in the next weeks in the European Union and amongst the Eurozone countries. I think we also have to realize here in Greece... Uh, what we can learn from other countries that went through this this crisis, Portugal, Ireland, and Cyprus, they had uh, an internal situation which was uh, much more consensual. The political forces got together. They may have, their, have had their differences, but said, okay, let's work together to solve this issue. And uh, we didn't do that. We had, um, I would say, a much more easy populism with, with opposition uh, and yet promising. That, populist, that left populist government is is still in in power and you yet you also have golden dawn you have right populism uh, appearing too but what isn't as far as i'm aware reappearing is the moderate center left technocratic perhaps social democratic form of greek politics that you hailed for um, which held sway in greece for so many decades it's a phenomenon not only uh, observable in Greece. I mean, you could you could uh, say that there are elements of it, it, it too in Britain with the Corbyn Labour Party and elsewhere. Do you believe that the centre-left can revive out of this experience? Because if so, it's taking a rather long time about it. I do believe the centre-left can revive. As a matter of fact, I see the centre-left as um, part of the solution of, uh, of our problems. The centre-left will it wants to bring 
both the a sense of capacity and competitiveness in reorganizing the economy, but also a sense of justice, which has been missing. There's been a great sense of uh, of inequality and, and problems for many parts of our society. But at the same time, I would say also a moderation in, in politics, uh, a voice of um, sincerity and uh, and being very open to the problems. And that's what I when I came in as prime minister, uh, I was a messenger of bad news, but uh, it was the previous government that had uh, made a mess of things. I had to reveal to the Greek people that the deficit was 15%, over 15%, and we had to take very difficult measures. Am I right in thinking that at one point you imposed a tax on swimming pools? Yes, we we did. We had to be quite innovative in many ways. We did impose taxes on swimming pools. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were some people that covered up the swimming pools or hid them, but we used... Um, Google Maps to to find them. So we had to do quite a bit of uh, innovative thinking. Last question. Uh, one of the people you dealt with most prominently in your, your time as, as Prime Minister was, of course, Angela Merkel in Germany. She's just about uh, or attempting to pull together her coalition uh, after 12 years in power and in, in many ways has been the pay mistress and the word giver in the Eurozone. Um, strengths and weaknesses of Angela Merkel from your personal encounters with her? Well, on the personal level, we had a very good relationship. We have a very good relationship. Uh, I think she's a good person down down deep, and uh, and uh, we had good communication. I think she uh, needed to take some bolder moves. She was quite cautious. That made her very popular in uh, in in Germany. She was seen as the one to protect Germany from these. Um, very, very lazy so-called Southerners, which was not true, of course, in, according to statistics. Greeks work more hours than anybody else in the European Union, according to the OECD. But uh, this kind of, um, uh, if you like, narrative was quite uh, quite uh, popular in, in Germany at the time, and I, did, I do think it did help her politically, but it did, did she undermine... understand the nature of the crisis? I think uh, we were all quite shocked and uh, bewildered when the crisis hit us in the European Union. Uh, that uh, I'm, not, I'm not taking myself out of that. Uh, everybody, I think, had to deal with something completely new, and uh, we were groping for solutions. The markets were very jittery, and they saw that the sovereign debt could be the next crisis, so all of a sudden Greece became the epicenter. So this was a wider issue, and I think this is where uh, Europe lost an initial opportunity to really work together and solve this problem much more quickly. Uh, A lot of pain, and I don't mean that we didn't uh, have to make our changes, and I still am in favor of making many more changes in Greece. We've got a lot to do. Let's hope that um, we learn from this, not only in Greece, but collectively as a European Union, to see that uh, if we move forward and strengthen our cooperation in many areas, whether it's from the economy or to defense, I think... uh, we can offer our, our citizens uh, something much more viable and uh, also dealing with the um, you know growth and uh, green growth and uh, sustainable growth. These are things which I think can inspire a younger generation in Europe. George Papandreou, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to talk to you. But what do you think? Get in touch and let us know whether you think that the Olympics can help contribute to a more peaceful world. You can reach us under Twitter at Economist Radio or radio at economist.com if you're the emailing type. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.